This Father's Day, give dad the gift that guarantees him a great morning every day. That's Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's Best Pair You'll Ever Wear or its free guarantee. Get 30% off gifts for dad on select Father's Day styles at TommyJohn.com. Save 30% at TommyJohn.com. See site for details. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. A warning, this episode features dramatizations and discussions of battlefield violence and death. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Something to note, the story you're about to hear is not a direct retelling of any single myth about the Banshee. Today's episode combines elements from a number of legends and stories about this wailing omen of death for dramatic effect. Liam was running toward the city center when he heard a sound echoing down the back alleys of Dublin. It was a woman's scream, piercing, heavy with anguish. He shuddered as the sound traveled up his spine and penetrated the base of his skull. Strangely enough, no one else seemed to hear the scream. No shutters opened, no heads poked out of doorways, Liam thought it had been loud enough to wake the devil himself. It looked like no one was coming to help the woman in pain. Mentally cursing his luck, he turned left, away from the gathering at the post office. The Irish Republicans were supposed to meet there today to declare their country's independence, but Liam would have to be late. Something was terribly wrong. Liam stopped short when he spotted the woman. She was crouched in a doorway, her head buried in her pale, white hands. At first, Liam thought she was wearing a threadbare cloak, but then realized that it was her hair. It was jet black, knotted and wild, and flowed down her thin shoulders to brush the ground. Liam said, "'Was it you that was screaming, ma'am? Are you all right?' Liam's words died on his lips as the woman turned to face him, her eyes, a brilliant blue he could even see in the growing darkness, sunk deep into the sockets. Her face was waxy and pale, her skin stretched so taut that he could see every gruesome detail of her skull beneath. The banshee raised a withered hand and pointed at Liam's chest. 
He felt it inside his ribs like a sharp arrow of foreboding. She grinned wildly, her teeth black and crumbling. She was death, agonizing and bloody. And she had come for him. Welcome to Mythical Monsters, a ParCast original. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Every week, we dive into history's most legendary monsters. In telling the stories of their origins, we hope to shed light on some truths hidden behind the creations of these beasts, where they come from, what they symbolize, and how they expose some of humanity's greatest fears. You can find episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Mythical Monsters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Today, we're discussing the Banshee, the Irish harbinger of death. This female fairy appears before the death of members of the oldest families of Ireland. If she appears to you, it means that before the day is over, some unlucky soul will perish. The folk tales and mythology of Ireland are full of giants, heroes, and most importantly, fairies. Fairies have a long and complex history with Ireland. They're believed to be the last vestiges of the Tua de Danann, the pagan gods that ruled Ireland before Catholicism spread across the land. Fairies act like capricious spirits, some holding power, some causing mischief, and others blessing or cursing the humans they come into contact with. The Banshee is a fairy who appears as an omen of death. Her name comes from Banshee, meaning fairy woman. A Banshee is commonly connected to one of the old Celtic families, often ones with surnames beginning with O, as in O'Connell, and Mick or Mac, as in MacDonald. The Banshee, with her ghastly appearance and otherworldly howl, evokes images of departed spirits. She appears at times of sorrow and bloodshed, shrieking in the night to mourn the loss of those of old Irish blood. This monstrous spirit taps into two very primal fears. The first is the fear of immediate death, the terror of knowing that the end could be around the corner for any of us. A second fear the Banshee evokes is that of a more metaphorical death. As she's associated with Ireland's oldest families, her wail is not only for the death of an individual, but the death of a people, a country that was, for much of its history, under foreign rule. She's thus a harbinger, a reminder of what waits for us all. She strikes fear in our hearts and sends our pulses racing. For if you hear a howl on the wind, you can't deny the small voice that echoes in your mind. Is this it? Is this the cry that's meant for me? Orla could not find Khan. 
The Vikings had attacked in the night, skirting the patrols and silently floating into the port under cover of darkness. The young woman awoke to the smell of smoke, a fire already burning the walls of her wooden house. Her husband was not there. Orla burst out of the front door, coughing to force the acrid smoke from her lungs. Outside was chaos. Men waved torches and looted houses. On the streets, she could see bodies, the cobblestones slick with blood. At the western end of the settlement, a great blaze lit the night sky. The monastery was burning. As Orla watched, its eastern wall crumbled and collapsed, sending the tower crashing to the ground. She spun around wildly, trying to spot Khan's sandy hair amongst the throngs running from the invaders. Wherever he was, it looked like her husband was not on the street. Orla was frightened. She had heard of the brutality of the Viking invaders from stragglers and refugees who'd passed through her village. Small settlements like hers up and down the coast had been put to the torch their stores plundered, and their people slaughtered. Even in the midst of the chaos, she knew that if Khan couldn't come back to the house, there was only one place he'd go. He'd make for the small fishing boat they kept tied up in the cove. Orla followed the crowd, clutching her bedsheet around her as a makeshift cloak. If she could make it to the water's edge, to Khan, she would be safe. The noises of the raid faded behind Orla as she made it to the water's edge. In the distance, she could see the Viking longship floating on the dark tide, its dragon's head snarled above the surface, a line of torches marching down its neck. She kept running along the sand, her breath coming short and hard. At the opposite end of the beach, there was a large boulder, and just behind it, she could see the bow of a tiny wooden boat bobbing in the shallows. She sprinted forward. A giant man with a long beard reared up out of the gloom. He held a heavy battle axe in his hands. Orla dropped to her hands and knees, scurrying as quickly as she could to the cover of a nearby pile of rocks. The Viking berserker hadn't seen her. He ran back toward the direction of the town, his axe hung over his shoulder. Orla held her breath as he passed by, less than a foot from her hiding place. The moonlight caught the edge of his axe, glinting off the bright red blood that dripped from the blade. When the man had faded once again into the night, Orla let herself breathe. She rose from behind the rock pile, heading once more toward the small boat's mooring. She would be cautious. She didn't know if any more Vikings were lurking out there in the night. On the sand below, Orla could see the crimson drops of blood left in the berserker's wake. The red spots, each just a few paces apart, seemed to be leading her toward the boulder at the end of the beach. It wasn't until she rounded the corner that she realized. One oar rested lazily in its oarlock. The other was nowhere to be found. A rope still tied the boat to the boulder. It snapped loudly against the water in rhythm with the waves. 
Orla's eyes burned. She knew what waited for her in the bottom of that boat. She knew, but still she had to look, to see it with her own eyes. A sheet of canvas lay in the bottom, crimson flowers blooming against its stark white surface. Orla reached for the edge with a pale hand, her fingers trembling. The body under the sheet was a monster, almost unrecognizable. The axe had done its job well. Hacking and slashing the torso, the arms, the legs, into a bloody mess. The only thing it hadn't touched was the face, Khan's face. Orla sank to her knees in the shallow water. She drew Khan's shoulders towards her, half dragging him out of the boat. Blood sloshed in the bottom, some of it even spilling out into the dark water. Khan's eyes stared straight ahead, unblinking. They had contained laughter once. They had held her own gaze in their thrall. Now, all she could see in them was the reflections of the stars in the heavens above. Orla threw her head back and wailed. She cried for her people, the neighbors lying dead in the streets, the monks burned alive in the monastery. She cried for the others that had fallen prey to the invaders, their settlements toppling one by one like dominoes down the coast. Most of all, she cried for Khan, the man who had been hers. She wept bitterly for the future they would never have. The tears cut a path through the ash and blood on her cheeks. She did not hear the berserker approach behind her. Hearing her screams, he had turned back around, abandoning the town to see what the commotion was at the boat where he had killed the fisherman. He rounded the corner once more and saw a woman with long, dark hair kneeling by the boat. Another one. They crawled out of the woodwork, these Irish, like termites on a ship. He raised his battle axe above his head and in a quick, practiced motion, brought it down. Orla's scream died in her throat. Coming up, Orla discovers that death is not always the end. Now, back to the story. Both Christianity and pagan traditions have long been intertwined in Irish history. As popular history tells it, in the 5th century CE, the Romano-British missionary St. Patrick brought Christianity to Ireland. Whether he actually drove any snakes out is still up for debate. The gales that populated the island at the time were more of a loose association of tribes than a united people. However, their shared beliefs unified them against outsiders. Though Christianity eventually overtook the Gaelic pagan beliefs, their mythology persevered as folktales and superstition. The Banshee, like many of the other fairy folk, survived the spread of Catholicism. Sightings of the Banshee reminded the people of the Gaelic identity that Ireland had sprung from. 
even in the banshee's cry, there's a deeper, culturally significant meaning. The scream of the banshee is the ethereal, haunting counterpart to a very real practice intrinsic to traditional Irish funerals. As a way to express the raw grief and pain of the family, women would perform a vocal ritual called keening. Keening comes from the Irish word quina, meaning crying or lament. When a person died, their family would hire a ban quinta to mourn the deceased. The keening woman, or sometimes a chorus of women, would use high-pitched vocalizations to give voice to the family's grief. The keens weren't quite screams or songs, but had elements of both, including repeated chants, rhythmic clapping or banging, and changes in pitch to express melancholy. Keening was a staple of Irish funerals until it died out in the 1950s. Some say it was extinguished by the Catholic Church, who saw the practice as pagan and a usurpation of the priest's role at a funeral. Though the practice of keening is now gone from the funeral parlor or wake, it lives on in the legend of the Banshee. In the late 12th century, King Henry II directed the Anglo-Normans of England to invade Gaelic-controlled Ireland. This kick-started a period of English rule that would last for 800 years. During this period of colonization, resentment grew amongst the Irish. The English laid claim to their land, established a fiefdom that relegated most Irish to the peasant class, and did their best to suppress the Gaelic people's own culture. After a number of smaller attempts throughout the centuries, in 1798, a revolutionary group called the United Irishmen staged a countrywide rebellion against the ruling British. Taking inspiration from the recent successes of the United States and France, they hoped to throw off the yoke of British rule forever and establish their own country. They would not live to see that dream. Orla did not know how long she'd been walking. The last thing she could remember was Khan's sweet face on the beach. His lips parted as if he was about to say something to her. Then there was only pain and darkness. Now she was walking through a field she did not recognize. At her right was a long, low stone wall, its irregular rocks jagged and crumbling in places. Soon, Orla came upon a small house at a gap in the wall. Though made of the same simple stones as the wall, it was grander than any of the huts in her own seaside village. Real glass sparkled in the windows, and clean thatch covered the peaked roof. Orla followed a well-worn path up to the front of the house and crouched by a window, peering inside. A woman and a young girl were seated by the fire. The woman was stirring something in a pot over the flames, while the girl was mending a piece of cloth with a needle and thread. Though Orla did not know it, it had been centuries since she last held Khan at the beach. The country she was in was her own, but the years that had passed had made it alien to her eyes. She had died in the midst of her grief for Khan, 
cut down by a Viking invader as she lamented the loss. Now she'd been called back once more to voice her grief, to warn others away from the same fate that had befallen her. Orla rose and went to the door. Though it creaked loudly as she opened it, the woman and the girl didn't acknowledge the sound. In fact, they carried on their conversation as if they hadn't heard anything. The woman was reassuring the young girl, who now Orla could see had tears in her eyes. The woman said, Don't you be crying for your father, Mary. He'll be back in the morning. It will be a glorious thing, you'll see. When the signal is given, all of Ireland will rise up and take back our land from British rule. This time tomorrow, you will be a hero's daughter. Orla's heart skipped a beat. She remembered similar words from the abbot at the monastery. They were worried about Viking raids, and he reassured them that all the berserkers in the world couldn't overcome Ireland. Again the pain welled up inside her, and it was like she was back at the boat all over again. All she could see was Khan's face. She knew soon he would be joined by this woman's husband, knew it deep inside the very marrow of her bones. She closed her eyes and wailed, the sound loud and piercing, falling and faltering as she ran out of breath. Mary was terrified. She'd been talking with her mother in the house, and then a sound from the depths of hell itself had exploded in the tiny room. A woman had appeared just inside the door. She was wearing a tattered dress, muddy at the hem and spotted with long, dried bloodstains. Her graying hair was wild and unkempt and grew down to her ankles. Her fingernails were long and yellowed, more claws than human nails. The woman that had materialized in the house looked as if she was a freshly animated corpse, just emerged from the grave. Mary clapped a hand to her mouth, backing toward her mother. The ghastly woman's eyes were the most horrible part, watery and blue. They glittered dully in the firelight, as if no spark of life remained inside them. Mary said, Mother, what is it? Who is that horrible woman? Her mother stepped in front of her, placing herself between the girl and the nightmare that stood on their doorstep. A far-off explosion sounded through the open door. Orla and the woman both turned to look. Atop a nearby hill, clouds of gun smoke rose from the grass. A battle had begun. Orla screeched once more and fled through the door, her long, tangled hair trailing behind her. The mother ran to the threshold and slammed the door closed, latching it tightly. She turned back to her daughter, who cowered by the fire, now her eyes were glistening with tears, too. She said, Mary, that was the Banshee. She's come to warn us. She appeared to us on the eve of battle against the British, which means only one thing. Death will come for your father tonight. 
Orla ran across the fields, her bare feet gliding across the dewy grass as she rushed toward the hill. At its base, she could see men in long, red cloaks holding weapons aloft. They stood in uniform rows, each taking turns to shoot a projectile from their weapons while others reloaded. They were organized, she saw, waging war with clockwork efficiency. A few of the red-coated soldiers surrounded a long metal tube that rested heavily on wooden wheels. One of the soldiers held a burning brand to the top of the contraption. Then a terrific boom sounded from the base of the hill. A large metal ball shot forward toward the hill. From the screams Orla heard from above, she knew that it had found its mark. As she drew closer, she was surprised that no sentry alerted the men to her presence. Soon, she was among them, and none of the soldiers seemed to even notice her. She had seen the fear in the faces of the woman and the girl in the house. She heard them call her a banshee, an omen of death. She ran up the side of the low hill, musket balls whizzing by on either side of her. As she reached the crest, she could see that the men holding the hill were of a different sort from the men below. They did not share a uniform or stand in orderly rows, but a sense of purpose united them all the same. These were the men the women in the house had been talking about. This was their battle, and Orla could see that they would die here, like Khan, cut down fighting an invading force. A young man at the front of the group suddenly slumped to the ground. A red splotch of blood bloomed on his white shirt, the way Khan's blood had spread on the canvas sheet centuries before. Orla felt the man's pain deep inside her, as if it were her chest the musket ball struck. This time when she screamed, it was no longer for Khan. It was for all the men on the hilltop, fated to die before the moon rose that night. They turned to her and saw a vision of decay. A shrieking ghoul of a woman was among them on the hill, keening like a banquinta at a wake. It was their funeral she marked. The banshee had come to warn them in her own horrible way. This rebellion would fail. It was their lives she mourned and the hope of a free Ireland. Though death's own herald walked among them, the men atop the hill still rallied to the sound of their leader's call to arms. If they gave their lives this day, it would not be in vain. Someday, far in the future, maybe they would finally be victorious. But today, at the cry of the Banshee, they would die. Next, the Banshee changes her mournful cry to a call for action. Now, back to the story. In 1798, the Irish Rebellion came to a bloody end atop the Hill of Tara, the seat of power for the ancient High Kings of Ireland. 
Over a hundred years later, in 1916, the Irish prepared once more to throw off the yoke of British rule. Beginning on April 24th, Easter Sunday, Irish Republicans staged what would become the largest rebellion in modern Irish history. The rebels planned to arm themselves and take back the capital city of Dublin. Using the city's general post office as a base, 1,200 Irish Republicans from all across the country fought to wrest control of the city from 16,000 British troops. The bloody conflict would come to be known as Easter Rising. Orla had found herself in a strange city carved of stone. By now, she knew what this new location meant. She'd wandered into dozens of battles over the years. She watched men being cut down by arrows, by cannons, and now by repeating rifles and machine guns. Once the salvos had stopped and the smoke cleared from the battlefield, she would be left alone with the bodies that remained. Orla had become an angel of death, a Valkyrie who appeared to men in battle. She knew the fear in their faces when they first saw her. It was the same fear she smelled on them when they finally bled out on the green hills. They were afraid to die. When the fight was over, she would move on. As she walked from the death fields, the air around her would shimmer. The grass beneath her feet rippled and warped, and soon enough she would find herself somewhere new, a different place, and usually a different time. Today she was in the Stone City. The narrow streets teemed with people and horse-drawn carts. Stranger still were the metal carriages, which belched black smoke and were propelled forward of their own magical volition. Despite her unsettling surroundings, Orla knew what her arrival in this place meant. She was here to mourn, to weep for the souls her country would lose next. Orla had retreated into the dark maze of alleyways to gain some respite from the busy streets. She heard the first shot as clear as day, the sharp, familiar retort of a gun ringing in her ears. She crouched in a doorway and screamed. A flock of birds, startled by her cry, hurriedly fled from the rooftops above. A boy appeared, running headlong down the alleyway toward her. She heard him ask if she was all right. When she turned to him, she saw that familiar terror sweep across his young face. But something caught her eye. Far along the alleyway to the north, in the direction of those first gunshots, she could see a flag flying. She recognized it from other battles. It was the flag that had flown over so many bloody battlefields in this land. Orla pointed to the boy, catching him off guard. He froze in her gaze, rooted to the spot like a frightened animal. She swung her arm north, pointing to the flag. The boy's time was near, and he would find it where the flag flew highest. Then the boy did a strange thing. The fear she'd grown so accustomed to melted from his face. Instead, he seemed fortified by her gesture. 
He nodded sharply to her, turned, and ran in the direction she pointed. Orla was confused. As a banshee, she'd grown used to mortals fainting with fear at the sight of her. She heard them whisper to each other, saying that she was an omen. Whenever she appeared, they said, anguish would follow. Intrigued by the fearless boy, she followed him. Liam raced down the alleyways toward the city center, his father's rifle bouncing on his back. Ahead of him, he could see that the resistance had set up barricades in the street, blocking military and police alike from entering the center. He bounded across the river to the northern quarter of the city, careful to avoid pockets of British army soldiers that milled about on the main roads. A rifle fired from somewhere behind him. Liam saw a man ahead of him dressed in civilian clothes suddenly slump to the ground. Blood pooled quickly under the man's head and neck, spreading into the gaps in the surrounding cobblestones. Liam changed direction, giving the dying man a wide berth. He skirted alongside buildings, hiding under eaves to avoid rooftop snipers. Miraculously, he reached the nearest barricade unharmed and scurried over it. Orla glided behind Liam, her long hair rippling in the strong wind coming off the river. She could see the bullets passing within inches of her face. She followed the boy as he scrambled over the first barricade, darting in and out of cover as he headed for a large granite building on a wide thoroughfare. The streets here were much emptier. The throngs of shoppers and citygoers had taken cover from the fighting. On this side of the barriers, a crowd was gathering at the foot of the granite building. Orla hurried forward to see what was happening. The crowd erupted into cheers, even as stray bullets continued to whiz by. High on top of the building, a man held the British flag aloft. He had wrenched it from the flagpole that flew over the street. With a great wave to the cheering crowd below, he threw the flag up into the air. The flag dove toward the paved street like a javelin, its fabric rippling violently in the wind. It crashed to the ground, its wooden poles splintering on impact. Back atop the building, the man heaved on the flagpole's rope. He hoisted a new flag, a dark emerald green with golden letters. Though the flag was hundreds of feet above her, Orla's uncanny sight let her read the message embroidered on the banner. The letters spelled out two words. Irish Republic. Orla turned back toward the barricade. On the other side, khaki-clad troops knelt in orderly rows, sheltering themselves from any reprisal gunfire. They peered up at the flag that flew above the street, looks of shock and anger on their face. Orla realized that this battle was different from the others, for once, she was not here to warn the Irish soldiers. She raised her hand once more and pointed at the British troops behind the barricade. This time, the Banshee's cry was for them, too. She parted her lips, opened her mouth wide, 
and called forth a shrieking, pure cry from deep within her belly. At the end of Easter week, Dublin was in ruins. Many buildings in the city center were bombed, and the general post office burned almost completely to the ground. By the Republican surrender on April 29th, 66 rebels and 143 British soldiers lay dead. Most devastated were the everyday Dubliners. 260 civilians were killed in the conflict. Though the Easter Rising of 1916 was ultimately unsuccessful, it laid the groundwork for Irish independence. By 1919, Irish Republicans in the government had declared independence. And in 1922, 26 of Ireland's 32 counties were free from British rule. A driving force behind Irish nationalism at the turn of the century was the Irish literary renaissance, in which poets, authors, and playwrights fostered a unified Irish identity by returning to themes of Gaelic mythology and folktales. Poet W.B. Yeats published a book of these tales, several of which featured the Banshee. Ever since, the Banshee has been irrevocably connected to mourning the loss of Irish heritage. She originally appeared to warn family and friends of the impending doom of members of the oldest Irish families. She served as a fantastical inspiration for the very real art of keening that accompanied Irish funerals for centuries. Derided over the years as pagan and backward by both the Catholic Church and occupying British forces, this custom was eventually stamped out. Tales of the Banshee were always about loss. She mourned the loss of heroes and loved ones. In many ways, she mourned the loss of a people's identity, which many felt had been stripped from them by invading forces. But the Banshee's role is not only to lament. In many cases, her cry acts as a warning of devastation and death to come. And sometimes it isn't only Irish rebels she's keening for. So if you find yourself out one night and hear a chilling, rising wail from somewhere out in the woods, hurry home as fast as you can. This time, the Banshee's cry just might be for you. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on the Banshee, amongst the many sources we used, we found Fairy and Folk Tales of Ireland by W.B. Yeats and Ancient Legends, Mystic Charms, and Superstitions of Ireland by Lady Francesca Speranza Wilde extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythical Monsters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythical Monsters on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next time.
Mythical Monsters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Molly Quinlan, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Vanessa Richardson.